Hello everybody, this is Julian Charles of themindsrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And welcome to what is probably the final programme of 2015 here at TMR. I mean, I can't be absolutely sure about that because... You never quite know what's going to happen, uh, but that's the way it looks at the moment because of, well, because of Christmas or all that sort of thing. So (laughs) that's the way it looks at the moment. The next show, I very much hope, will be on New Year's Day itself, 1st of January 2016, when I hope to be joined by the Fireside Nephilim Boys of Like Flint Radio. I shall leave that mystery of the name with all of you to uh, ponder upon for the moment. And we'll be having what certainly promises to be probably quite a controversial and I think no doubt heated roundtable discussion or um, I'm wondering to call it a friendly brawl who knows what it will be and uh, we'll be looking back over 2015 and we'll be chatting about the things in the media including the alternative media that have basically got under our skins in various ways so I'm very much looking forward to that because I think it's going to be quite a lot of fun. So today, probably the last show of 2015, I'm delighted to welcome Pastor Mike Spaulding, who kindly invited me a few months back on his radio show, Soaring Eagle Radio, for a very enjoyable conversation. So I'm very much hoping we're going to have an equally enjoyable chat today. Dr. Spaulding was ordained to the ministry in 1998, and he is Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel Lima. He holds a PhD in apologetics from Trinity Theological Seminary, and is the author of many, many many articles appearing in all kinds of publications both in print and on the internet and he maintains a couple of blogs the transforming word and dr mike spaulding he is as i say the host of his own radio show soaring eagle radio but he's also heard on radio stations across the midwest u.s as he teaches on the program the transforming word mike thanks ever so much for coming on the show it's really good to be speaking with you julian thank you so much for inviting me it is an honor and a privilege to be talking with you today you really are too kind. Um, it is uh, really, really good to be speaking with you because, as I say, we did have that really interesting conversation when we chatted last time. And, uh, of course, as these interviews between podcasters uh, tends to go, we have an invitation for interview each way, don't we? So uh, it was my turn to invite you on my show. And there was clearly no debate as to what we should talk about because I heard you and Garth Kennedy, I think it was in the late summer on Light Flint Radio, uh, you were talking about... Biblical hermeneutics. And when I heard that show, I thought, that's exactly the kind of thing I've got to speak to Mike about, because it was so fascinating. Um, so I've already apologized to GK, uh, Garth Kennedy, for stealing his idea. <laughs> he's, he's, quite, he's quite happy with that, because I've told him you can just steal any of my ideas as well. So he's, he's very happy with that. Anyway, so we're going to be talking about this biblical hermeneutics. And we'll get into quite what that means in a few minutes. Well, let's start with a bit of an intro on you, Mike, if that's okay. Could you, sure. Could you tell us a bit more about your background and what you do and, I suppose, really just what makes you tick? Sure. Absolutely. I'd love to do that, Julian. I am a, a bivocational pastor. Now, I discovered when I told uh, GK that he had no idea what that meant. And I'm not sure if in the UK uh, that's a phrase that uh, people are familiar with. I've never heard of it before, actually, until you mentioned it. Well, good. That's Then, then here's what it means. <laughs> it means that uh, I do not draw a salary from the church that I pastor, that I followed in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul, and I am a tent maker, which means that I hold down a full-time job and I support my family through that job. So that releases the church 
from that burden of salary and uh, health insurance and all of those things, and we're able to put that money uh, into the ministry. So, and, and I've done that. I've always done that, Julie, and I, I've never looked to the churches that I've pastored to support me financially. And then, of course, there's some benefits to that that I won't go into too much detail, but uh, it allows me a degree of freedom to not be overly concerned about what the church board uh, may think about uh, uh, some of my viewpoints and how forcefully I might make those, if if you understand what I'm saying. Yes, indeed. And it's yeah. uh, a very interesting take on it. Yeah, well, I'm, I've, I've always done that, and so and it's worked out quite well. But uh, but I've served on church staffs before. Um, I, I served about ten years as a director of educational programming. Essentially, put me in charge of Sunday school programs, the discipleship programs, the midweek Bible study small group programs, and it was from that, Julian, that I that I really developed a, a, a strong desire to teach. I have two undergraduate degrees. Uh, One is in organizational management, which is sort of a human resource kind of degree. And I have uh, an undergraduate degree in Christian education. My graduate degree was a little broader in theological studies. And, of course, my uh, postgraduate is in apologetics. So building up on that, I became very keen on making sure that uh, people were being taught the Bible not denominational particulars. That's a real battle that we have here in the States. Hmm. Folks leaning on or leaning toward or teaching more of their particular denominational theologies and not just sticking to what uh, the scripture says. And and I know that you could appreciate uh, the distinction. Right. So uh, you see a lot of people interpreting what the Bible says through a certain way of looking at it because of their tradition, do you? That's correct. Yes, that's exactly right. It's a natural fit for me to talk about hermeneutics because that's kind of been my background. I do want to say this, though, Julian, for your listeners. I am not a scholar. I'm not a professor. I don't teach at seminary, nor do I have a desire to do those things. I'm a pastor of a small church uh, here in in the Midwest United States. So these things that I'm going to be sharing today come from uh, much study, but I always encourage people, listen, go out and study things for yourself. If there's anything that you happen to not understand or even disagree with, I encourage you to study those things on your own. Be a good Berean, Mm, in other mm. words. You say that you're not officially an academic. However, your study is in the context of application with your church community, isn't it? So there's a tremendous amount of depth that can come from that that many academics never experience. You know, certainly Christianity is applied to our lives. And so in some ways, actually, somebody who is engaged with hermeneutics in both academic and practical ways is the best person to talk to, if you get my meaning. Yes, and that's a very good point, Julian. Uh, I have an opportunity daily to make application of what we're learning and studying to the everyday life of people, which is something that, uh, that as you've pointed out, is not the case with many academics. Okay, well, of course, um, we're going to be, as I say, talking about this biblical hermeneutics. And uh, I think before we... I mean, I do want to get some kind of definition from you as to what that might mean. But I think even before we go there, we need to deal with another question first, if it's okay with you. And that is the belief that's certainly implicit in our conversation here today, that the Bible is, in some sense, authoritative. 
Many Christians will say the Bible is the word of God. Now, not everybody will use that phrase, but a lot of people do. Um, and I do think that people don't necessarily have a definition of what that might mean. But I think most people would say that the Bible is the word of God. And yet it's clear that when we read it, it's also a collection of writings by human beings. So how do you, presumably you do understand the Bible to be the word of God, and if so, and I'm sure you do, what does that mean, given that it's very clearly also a collection of writings by human beings? Mm, yeah, that's a very, very good question. Um, the Bible is the word of God for believers, for Christians, uh, because we ascribe several characteristics to it, such as authority, inspiration, and of course those all have meanings unto themselves, don't they? Mm. Um, the Bible is the inspired word of God. And so what that means is, and, and let me give for your listeners a couple of passages of scripture that really bear this out. Second sure. Timothy 3.16, for example, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training uh, in righteousness. Second um, Peter 1.21 for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So in, in literal biblical terminology, inspiration is the process by which uh, the Holy Spirit moved writers to record God-breathed writings. Uh, and so we see it that way. And, and let me just explain biblical inspiration, because that's, that's an often misrepresented or misdefined theological principle. Uh, basically, biblical uh, inspiration is defined as God's superintending of the human authors using their own personalities. He didn't change that, using their own backgrounds and styles of writing so that they composed without error his revelation to man. The Bible has a divine origin. It means that it was caused by him. It came from him. So it has a divine origin, but it also uses human agency. Mm -hmm. It was uh, written verbally. It is therefore a communication. It is plenary. And what we mean by that, uh, the inspiration of the scriptures is, is plenary. We're talking that all of scripture is inspired, not just parts of it. That, and that, let me that's say that's a this. very interesting point. I will let you say whatever it is you're going to say. Yeah. But uh, yes, the idea that it's all inspired, I'm not going to disagree with that, but I'm going to, in a moment, as we say here in the UK, throw a spanner in the work slightly with that. <laughs> because it, again, it depends upon how you mean inspired, because actually that's a word I think that could have a lot of semantic range in itself. Sure. Um, you talk about superintended mm -hmm. a process of yeah. writing scripture. Yeah. So yeah, but you, you carry on, because I'm going to throw something at you in a moment. Okay. Yes, good. Now, when we're talking about uh, inspiration and the inerrancy, and I think we'll probably touch on that in, in a little bit too, Julian, we have to bear in mind that that relates to the autographs. Yes. What I mean by that for your listeners is that that relates to the original writings, the original manuscripts that were penned by the biblical authors. That is what is inspired. That is what is inerrant. And inerrancy really just flows from inspiration. I know that you're keen on syllogism, so uh, we could we could <laughs> we we could say it this way: uh, God is true. That's the major premise, and we find that in Romans three four. God is true. 
The minor premise is that God breathed out the scriptures. That's a passage that I just read earlier, 2 Timothy 3.16. So if God is true, God breathed out the scriptures. The conclusion is the scriptures are true. So inerrancy flows out of inspiration, but those two theological principles are related to the original autographs. And that's important for believers to keep in mind because it's easy for them to get tripped up by people asking questions uh, if they don't understand that. So what was your question? Well, it has to do with kind of not breaking the syllogism apart, but adding something in there that perhaps makes it less watertight. Well, why not? Let's let's have a go. Um, So I can see how the way you've talked about inspiration, I can see how that applies to things like, say, the Gospels, um, to the letters of Paul. I can see how those sort of didactic elements there, direct teaching, direct recording and fashioning of the story, the narrative about Jesus' ministry, I can see how those could be inspired. And that makes sense to me. However, I find it more difficult to say something like the writer of Ecclesiastes, let's say, is speaking under inspiration right at the beginning of Ecclesiastes. We have him announcing it's meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. (laughs) Everything is meaningless. And then loads of other negative phrases, you know, that go on throughout the book like that. You know, he sounds like a sort of uh, a prototype of Nietzsche, you know, way back then. There's no meaning. (laughs) Uh, There's no truth kind of stuff, you know. So I find it difficult to bring that under the rubric of inspiration. Now, I have my own view as to mm-hmm. how that... You sort of talked about superintended. I'm closer to that yeah. sort of notion. Anyway, how would you deal with that kind of accusation? Well, I would, I would simply point out that everything that the Bible uh, states is true, that it's inspired in both of the Testaments, new and old, and that the fact that a human perspective is being presented in the Old Testament, it doesn't mean that it wasn't inspired, and it doesn't mean that it's true from God's perspective. It means that it is true to the perspective of the writer who is writing it. And there's some lessons to be learned there, even from Ecclesiastes saying that all is meaningless. I mean, that is a a very nihilistic philosophy, to be sure, um, but it is something that God addresses uh, within the context of that uh, of that book itself, Ecclesiastes. Sure. So do you mean then that God actually inspired the writer of Ecclesiastes to speak in that kind of way? I mean, that would I could bring up, say, something like uh, the vengeance psalms of David, calling for vengeance on his enemies. I could bring up, um, say, Psalm 22. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? I mean, these seem to me to be fully, and perhaps just on the surface looking at it, completely human emotions, completely human motivations here, how does that even fall under the notion of inspiration there, that God is inspiring people to speak, say, for vengeance on their enemies? Yes. Well, in the first example, uh, that is clearly an imprecatory psalm. Uh, And the second one, it is uh, messianic in nature. I think Psalm 22 is the one you were referring to there. And the second, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I'm glad you brought that up, uh, these examples, Julian, because uh, the one thing that I appreciate about the scriptures, and it actually is a point of strength when you're discussing the reliability of the Bible, the authority of the Bible, the inspiration of the Bible. The Bible doesn't leave out any warts. 
It doesn't leave out any of the uh, human emotions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about uh, God uh, using human agency. We certainly did that. And the Psalms are particularly dear to me. I've, uh, I've been teaching through the Psalms on Sunday mornings now for the past couple of years. And uh, I've made it to uh, Psalm, finish Psalm 38 this past Sunday, uh, where David is bemoaning the result of his uh, sin. Some think it's uh, related to Bathsheba. It's it's quite possible. I can't say that uh, definitively, uh, but some say it is. And so that, but that's one of the things that I admire and appreciate about the Bible. If it was a a concocted story from people, as often the accusation is hurled, I know you've heard this. They certainly wouldn't discuss all of these things. They wouldn't discuss uh, their feelings of resentment or vengeance or and and when we talk about David uh, and the imprecatory Psalms, uh, we're also reminded that it's uh, balanced out by God's viewpoint, which says vengeance is mine leave room for that judgment. So I don't see that as a weakness or or criticism that can't be overcome. Uh, it, It simply is part of the biblical narrative and human emotions. Yeah, I do take that point. Certainly, I see, going back to that, what you said about superintended, so God has certainly not left out these crucial human emotions. They're all part of God's book in this this wider sense. But I still don't quite see how that falls under inspiration. Um, And I obviously don't want to go on with this forever, but uh, I want to run by you something that I found very helpful in this respect. And I don't know whether you will concur with it, but just let me um, throw it at you. I mean, I have found with these kinds of questions, I have found the I brought this up actually once or twice in podcasts before. But let me speak a little bit more about it because people may be wondering what on earth I was going on about in those other um, (laughs) podcasts. This is the idea by Christian philosopher Nicholas Walterstorff who was, uh, I don't know, he still is professor of philosophy at Yale. He was anyway at at one point. And uh, he talks about the difference between inspiration and appropriation. So this is probably close to the idea of superintending the process. Mm -hmm. So inspiration is, as we've said, you know, God directly inspires the writing by the person who's actually doing the, the, the remembrance and the collection and the writing of these materials and editing of these materials. Appropriation would be where God gives his kind of seal of approval to what is perhaps a fully human communication, a piece of writing. So you might say that through the whole process of these writings being preserved and cherished and collected by the Hebrew people and later by the early Christian people, we call that the development of the canon of Scripture, these things being collected and preserved, that can be seen as God's act of appropriating human texts and giving a kind of divine vote of yes to them, as it were. This becomes God's book. Because through that whole process, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's superintended the whole process and he's he's given this vote of yes to it. So it doesn't necessarily mean that all the words say exactly what God wants to say in any given instance. It's not that necessarily God is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, for example. But the Bible as a whole is what God wants us to have. It's God's book in that wider sense. How do you react to that kind of vision? Yeah, well, I would I would point to the number of passages uh, in the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, that speak to God having spoken to the writers, to the prophets. This is my word. Um, there are a number of instances of that, and I'll see if I can pull something up that will give uh, our listeners some examples of that. But there are a number of instances in the Old Testament where the prophet 
is speaking, and in the New Testament, a reference is made to that Old Testament passage, but in the New Testament says, and the Holy Spirit said, or God said. And so, to me, that speaks of the inspiration of all of those texts, some of them in, in, uh, uh, that you pointed out. While you find that, I'm going to nuance this a little further, because Nicholas Walterstorff actually brings up speech act theory to delineate what he's trying to say here so you could say well you know people in the new testament said um god said through the old testament prophets such and such or through some old testament writing god said such and such well nicholas walterstorff would bring up this speech act theory to illustrate that this will take a bit of explaining i hope you don't mind no not <laughs> um, at all <laughs> uh, he, he he um because he's a philosopher you know he, he says there are locutionary acts of speech so these are like writing things down or speaking things with your lips but he says there are also illocutionary acts the opposite kind of thing which are other types of actions that they nevertheless they result in communication so they're not writing things down they're not tying knots in a piece of string and communicating that way you know they're not speaking with your lips or writing down Um, so for example raising an arm in the right context could be an illocutionary speech act so for example if um if a speech is given in a political meeting And you have this massive discourse by a political person. And then people are asked, do you agree or disagree with everything that's been said? I mean, this is just a thought experiment. Okay, so if you raise your arm to signal that you have approved of everything that's been said, then you're appropriating that discourse to yourself. But you haven't spoken a word. You've just raised your hand. And so the idea here is that God is in an illocutionary way. Not actually speaking, but he's involved in this whole process, as I said, of developing the whole canon of Scripture, gathering it all together in this illocutionary speech act where God is, as it were, raising his hand and saying yes to this whole thing. Mm. And so in that sense, you could say God spoke through this text or God spoke through that text, but it wouldn't necessarily mean the way that we were talking about inspiration, that God directly breathed through some particular person to say some particular thing at a particular moment. Yeah, I, and that's a that's a good point, Julian. I think that's a completely different perspective on inspiration, and I don't know this for a fact because I've not studied the gentleman that you've quoted. Sure. But the sense of it for me is that he is writing coming from a a higher criticism or textual criticism perspective, and so I would find that um, a reason to be very cautious when approaching that kind of. Um, of a definition or application to the scriptures. And that, again, coming from my own training and background, um, my immediate response would be that I would reject that because of the source that it's coming from. But I would have to study him more to be able to be sure about that. Sure. Yeah, well, I found it a very interesting and in some ways helpful notion. But, you know, as, yes. as with, with all of these things which one reads about, these very difficult philosophical questions really yes. to do with you know, we wouldn't expect there to be philosophical questions to do with reading the Bible, but there are. You know, you do. Oh, well, there are. You, for indeed, sure. that's right. And so you do read quite widely, and you know, pick up bits and pieces which are useful from different contexts. And you're quite right. I don't know a great deal about the background of the man, but um, you know, I find it very interesting and helpful to to read quite widely well, about these things. And some things are helpful, even though they may come from a source that you know you wouldn't necessarily agree with yes. everything they say. Yeah. Right. Well, and it's certainly, uh, you should evaluate the ideas and and the thoughts. You should do that uh, against the backdrop of uh, who is presenting them and and what their background is. Uh, But it is certainly helpful, I guess, to your point. The reason that you brought it up is that it is helpful 
to consider that as one explanation or, or answer for some of the more problematic texts in the scriptures. And so we should, we should at least explore that, uh, I, I believe. Okay, well, this is fascinating stuff. We've gone on talking about just this element for the whole of the podcast, but I think that would be a mistake, wouldn't it? Um, we do actually need to get down to the, the nitty-gritty of actually how to read this thing called the Bible, which brings us, of course, to this hermeneutics. So you've got to tell us, what on earth is hermeneutics? What does that mean? Why is it so important? Yes, well, uh, as you know, Julian, it's a Greek word, uh, hermeneuo. It means to interpret it essentially is the study and statement of the principles uh, on which a text, and of course for our conversation today, the biblical text, uh, is to be understood. So there is a proper way to study the scriptures in, in a way that they can be understood. And so that's essentially what hermeneutics is. It's the process of studying uh, the scriptures. And it is a process. Um, and before we jump into that, I do want to give uh, some preliminary things that we should admit, and I, I like to frame it uh, this way. Uh, we all have biases. Uh, we all have presuppositions. Uh, we all have uh, worldviews, and it does, uh, it does no one any good whatsoever to uh, try and deny that. For me, I believe the Bible is true, and I believe it is the inspired Word of God. And so as I come, as I approach the study of the scriptures, I'm coming from that viewpoint. Now, some of your listeners may think, well, that's a prejudiced viewpoint. And to that, I would say you're absolutely right. But uh, understand this, everyone has a prejudiced viewpoint. So an unbeliever may come to a reading of the Bible, but their bias is this. The Bible is just a collection of writings from uh, a bunch of dead guys that really doesn't have any bearing on my life today. So the point is everybody has biases that they bring into a study, and so we have to admit yes. that. Yeah, so there is that, that myth of neutrality. Yes. Yeah, it really is, yes. isn't it? Because everybody does come with some baggage, yeah, one way that's, or another. That's sure. exactly right. And then I encourage people, listen, when you come to a study of the Scriptures, you need to understand. So you have your own biases, uh, but you need to understand that the Scripture, the Bible, is saying something. It is saying something very clear, and we can understand what that is. But there's a process that we must go through to understand what that is. And, and so the first thing I tell people is context is king. It was written by a particular person at a particular time, in a particular place, to a particular people, for a particular reason, to address something very specific. And so the first order of business is to understand what is that message? Why did the author write what he did to these people, and why did he say what he said? There is a clear answer to those questions, Julian. And that's something that is lost sometimes on people. They think, well, we can never know what the Bible is actually saying. Mm. The fact of the matter is, uh, the truth is exactly the opposite. We can know. Uh, the problem we get ourselves into many times as uh, Bible-believing Christians, pastors, teachers, is that we make a, an improper application. We take something that's in the Bible and try to make it say something else to fit our modern situation. And that's, that can be problematic. And we may not even do it consciously. That's true. There are so many preachers who just don't consider questions, which we'll get into, you know, like genre is a big one. Yes. haven't really considered that question and so can end up saying, well, the Bible says such and such. And you're thinking, well, not quite, because 
that's not that kind of writing. We'll get onto this in yes. a moment, but it can happen completely unconsciously with the best of motives. Yes, I, I agree with that. And then finally, I try to remind people, Julian, that there are difficult texts in the Bible, and we've, we've kind of touched on that already, but it is the habit of some to try and dismiss those try to work around them or gloss over them or, or ignore them. And, and you just can't do that. If you're going to approach the Bible, approach it as a whole and uh, take on those difficult uh, passages and uh, try to understand them. So that's a preliminary checklist, if you will, <laughs> Okay. Yes. <laughs> as we enter yes. into a, a hermeneutic uh, approach to studying the Scripture. Now, for your listeners, and I'm hoping that they'll maybe even take some notes. That would be wonderful, because uh, try to remember all this stuff is a little difficult. But uh, let, let me jump in there straight sure. away. Um, having heard your previous interview on this subject with GK, I'm going to say, please, listeners out there, do take notes, because there were so many gems in that previous conversation. I'm quite sure there will be this time. So please, off you go. <laughs> Stop the podcast now, get, get, a, get a pen and paper, restart. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that, uh, Julian. A couple of texts that I, I would encourage your listeners, if they're really interested in, in this subject, here are two that I uh, normally recommend. And again, um, I'm not a seminary professor, so I'm not going to encourage people to go out and buy things that were really just useless for them. These oh, are man. these are <laughs> these are texts that uh, any lay person who is interested in, in understanding how to study the Bible can read and can comprehend. One I've used for twenty five years. It is Robertson McQuilkin's Understanding and Applying the Bible. His last name is M C Q U I L K I N. Robertson McQuilkin, Understanding and Applying the Bible. And the other one is uh, William Hendricks, Living by the Book. They're both very good hermeneutical process study books that anyone can grasp and understand if they're interested in this subject. So, But three major categories that I want to point out to your listeners um, uh, are, are these observation, interpretation, and application. Those are the three major categories that we want to pay attention to as we're studying the Bible. Observation, what do I see? Interpretation, what does it mean? And of course, as I've already pointed out, this is within the context uh, of the original readers first. We always need to understand the meaning in its context before we start jumping to application. Uh, And in fact, application is the third step. So observation, interpretation, and then application. How does it apply to me uh, in my life? In other words, it's that question, Julian, that everybody always asks. Okay, I hear what you've said. It's a wonderful sermon, but what does that mean for me? But you can't jump there first. You can't just read what's in the Bible and say, what does this mean to me? That's correct. If you don't ask any of the questions, well, what was going on at the time, or even what was written just before this, turn the page back and turn the page forward, you're just going to misinterpret it. That's exactly right, and I'll give you an example of that. Uh, And this is just one of several. There are many passages of Scripture that are kind of thrown out there as this wide dragnet that can mean just about anything. People like to throw out the passage, I can do all things uh, through Christ who strengthens me. It's a wonderfully encouraging passage, but it has a particular meaning. Within the context, what it meant was Paul was talking about how do you become content 
in life? What is the secret of contentment? Because he was talking about, you know, being poor, destitute, having nothing. We know what Paul went through, uh, all of the ordeals. And he said, you know, I've learned the secret of contentment. And whether I have plenty or little, I can do all things through Christ. So it doesn't so, so really, it's talking about materialism, in my opinion. <laughs> now, people don't want to hear that. Right, right. So it's not as, I think, is it a quote from Goofy to Mickey Mouse? Is it, <laughs> can, can you strike a match on a jelly? Is it, yeah, or a jello? It. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 It doesn't enable you to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so that's one reason why we don't want to jump from observation right to application, because you miss the interpretation, and then you misapply it. So observation is... Uh, is the first principle. Now, there are uh, some subcategories under these as well, Julian. And uh, when we're talking about a process of good observation, then we want to observe uh, a few things. One, we want to observe words or phrases, uh, terms that we're going to come across. We want to consider the, the structure of the text and then genre. Genre is a big one, and you've pointed that out. And it, and it is important that we understand the genre of, of uh, the book that we're studying. And then um, the background or the context uh, for the writing and, and, and the writer. So what do we mean by observing terms or, or words? Well, uh, I like to give the example of Psalm 23 right off the bat because um, – Everybody knows that. It's, it's like uh, John 3.16. Uh, most people can recite uh, from memory Psalm uh, 23. Uh, some of your listeners may be doing it even now as we bring that yeah. psalm up. Uh, I suspect there will be some people who know parts of it and don't even know that it comes from the Bible, actually, because it's that famous, isn't it? Yes, that's right. That's a good point. Uh, but it says, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He, and I'm going to emphasize some words here just for the purpose of illustration. Uh, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness. So I could read that whole psalm, those six verses there. And what you're going to see repeatedly in there are words calling attention to God. The focus of Psalm 23 is on God as our shepherd, our provider, our defender. But Julian, I can't tell you how many times this psalm has been taken completely out of its context and made to mean that it is all about everything that we're going to get from God because we're the king's kids. That kind of stuff just drives me crazy. Right. So I've got all these fantastic things that I'm going to get from God. I get the picture. Yeah. That's exactly it. I can imagine it. Um, So uh, observing the terms of the words, then uh, looking at the structure— And and what I mean by that is we're going to ask all those questions that everybody always asks when if they're reading any other work of literature, you're going to ask the who, what, when, where, how, why questions. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that is such an important phrase just there. When you're reading the Bible, in a sense, you're approaching it as if it's just a text. And that sounds irreligious almost. Oh, it must be special. And so, of course, it is special, but that doesn't mean that the normal way of approaching a text doesn't apply. So I think that's a a hugely important point to get over. Yes, that's correct, Julian. That's a a very good point. In fact, that's one apologetic approach uh, when someone says, well, how do we how can we trust the Bible? It's just an old document. Uh, well, we, uh, we approach it uh, and we study it and we evaluate it the same way we would uh, any other work of antiquity. And what we find at the end of the day is that the Bible has uh, the most manuscript evidence of any work of antiquity. 
and uh, those the manuscript evidence is the closest to the actual events themselves uh, than any other work of antiquity. So, but that's we'll save that for another time. So, uh, asking those questions: who, who, what, when, where, how, why. But observing the structure also means that we should be looking for things that are emphasized or things that are repeated. And I already gave it uh, an illustration of that with Psalm 23, that the focus of Psalm 23 is God. God is our shepherd, our provider, our defender, and all of those things. It isn't us or what we're going to get from God. Uh, And so we look for things that are emphasized. We look for things that are repeated, related, that are alike, and so on and so forth. I'll give your listeners an example uh, of things that are emphasized, a couple of passages of Scripture, John uh, 20, uh, verses 30 and 31, uh, says this, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in him. And then we read Hebrews uh, 8, verse 1, which says, now the main point in what has been said is this. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the emphasis is there. It's telling us, listen, John says, I wrote this gospel so that you would know that Jesus is the Christ. That's the whole point in this gospel. And then the writer to the Hebrews, the same thing. So things that are emphasized, um, the Bible repeats things. Mm. So... Moving on then to genre. Well, let me just say there, this is one of the things that uh, gets my goat. Uh, When people do readings in church, there are some very good readers, but there are those who don't think in the way that you're describing here. And so this kind of main point, this emphasis doesn't come over. In fact, I find lots of readings that are at the front of the church very deadpan, Mm. as if it's not supposed to communicate it's on a different plane of religiosity that uh, you know it must always be spoken monotone and it yes. constantly <laughs> annoys me so but i'm just thinking of it you reminded me you see when you had that uh, reading there from hebrews 8 yeah. so often the, the reading would be you know the point of what we are saying is this we do have such a high <laughs> and the, it needs to be the point yeah. of, of what we're saying is this yes exactly <laughs> you know that's that's how these texts communicate and there are so many instances of that throughout the scripture so when i try to read in church I mean, some people probably think I'm being overdramatic, but I think it's necessary in order to get across the fact that this is actually supposed to be a vehicle of communication. Anyway, I've interrupted you. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's no, that's wonderful, and I, I would agree with you. I wish more people would understand that that's the way the text is meant to be read. So observation, part of that observation is to understand uh, what the genre is. And I know this is something that you're particularly interested in, uh, Julian. Absolutely. Just before you say it, though, I've just come up with another example that links into genre and um, illuminates exactly what we were just saying then. And that is, I've just picked here from Revelation. I was reminded where, of course, this is an apocalyptic book. You'll you'll tell us about that in a moment. uh, Where I preached from this book. I can't remember exactly what passage it was. Anyway, I said to the congregation, first of all, look, I'm going to read this passage in a dramatic way because I think this is the way it should be read. And that's because it's this style of writing. It's this genre of writing. And it may have been this passage, I don't know. But here we have this heavenly vision here that John is having. And he, he describes the sort of angelic creatures and this is in chapter five and so i'll read it the way i read it and as i say i did say to them i'm going to read it in a dramatic way so i read it like this 
Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open it. You see what I mean? Yes. And they, were ex- they weren't expecting that. They were expecting me to read it, as I say, deadpan. But the drama of that, it just shouts at you. It's even written in this versified way, like poetry, you know, and, and it, it's a drama, and you're supposed to read it as a drama and understand it that way. Anyway, that is a segue into uh, genre, so... Off you go. <laughs> yeah, I love that, Julian. And I try to do the same thing when I'm uh, reading text uh, from the pulpit is read it with passion. Mm-hmm. And just imagine, speaking of the book of Revelation, uh, when it talks about the elders and and uh, all of the singing and the, the hallelujah chorus and the holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And can you just imagine that? Mm-hmm. How do you deadpan that? I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the thing is, you can't imagine it, but one of the functions of this kind of apocalyptic literature is to elevate it to this dramatic level so that you're invited to try and imagine the unimaginable, as no doubt yes. Paul would have put it himself, you know. <laughs> know the unknowable, imagine the unimaginable. Exactly. It's, it's there to help you do that. Yes. If you don't understand that that's what the text is doing, you think, well, this is, this is really weird. But it isn't. It's a drama. Exactly. It's inviting you into the drama. That's exactly Sorry, I'm, right. I'm, I'm interrupting you too much. Often. No, 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 no. No, I, I think it's wonderful. This is the kind of dialogue that is, uh, is very valuable for our listeners, and it will encourage them. Um, and so part of observation then is, is genre, and there are primarily five categories or genres of text. Now, some may split them into more, six or even seven. I see five basic genres. Those are narrative, gospel, poetry, prophecy, and didactic and I don't want to really do a deep dive in all of those, or that would be all we get covered today, Julian. But I do want to point out a few things about each of those categories. What is narrative? Well, narrative is a story that's told for the purpose of conveying a message through the record of events, situations, people, places, various other factors that that uh, constitute a story. Now, there are different types of narratives. So there's a subgroup within uh, the genre of narrative, and that is uh, tragedy. We think of um, King Saul, for example. Mm. There is epic, epic narrative. We think of uh, the Exodus as an example, and even heroic, heroic narrative, and that would be the Apostle Paul and all of the things that he uh, persevered through in his ministry for the Lord. Then there's poetry as a genre. Now, clearly, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon are the main poetic books, but there is poetry uh, embedded in the other books as well. When we talk about poetry, one of the keys really is that uh, Hebrew poetry uses uh, parallelisms. And there are basically three forms of parallelism that folks need to pay attention to, and and the reason will become obvious in a moment. There is uh, something called synonymous parallelism, antithetic parallelism, and then synthetic parallelism. Um, When I say synonymous parallelism, Proverbs 19.5 is an example. It says, a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who tells lies will not escape. So, what you're seeing there is a presentation is the same thought with a slight difference. It's just stated a little differently, but it's the same thought. So that's a synonymous parallelism. Um, 
antithetic parallelism, Proverbs 13, 1. A wise son accepts his father's discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. There we see two thoughts that are in contrast to one another, so antithetical. And then uh, synthetic parallelism, Psalm 92, 9 is a good example. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies will perish. All who do iniquity will be scattered. So synthetic parallelism sets the expectation that is completed by the second part. So the first part, behold, your enemies, O Lord, behold, your enemies will perish. And then the second part, all who do iniquity will be scattered. So, sure. I, 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 go ahead. In fact, Rachel. actually, this you know this can sound like a, a very sort of academic thing. All right, there are these various forms of parallelism. Do we really need to know that? Do we really need to know that this is proverb rather than psalm? You know, is this important? Well, actually, I was reminded of an excellent book by Donald Carson called Exegetical Fallacies. Uh, um, yes. So this is you know mistakes made in reading the Bible. Exegetical fallacies is essentially what that means, and uh, he comes up with a fantastic example from Proverbs from Proverbs 26, where it is a parallelism, 26.4 and 26.5, and and it goes like this. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. (laughs) And the next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. (laughs) And it it sounds like you've got, hey, just a minute, this is a contradiction. What advice are you giving me? Am I supposed to answer them according to their folly or not answer them according to their folly? And of course, the point he makes is, look, this is a proverb. This is giving advice, and it's going to depend upon the particular situation. You're supposed to weigh this up. So this parallelism is not presenting you with a contradiction. It's presenting you with good advice, and it's you to use your God-given wisdom in that situation. And unless you realize that this is a proverb, you're going to think, oh, well, this is just nonsense, it's contradiction. And it's not, because that's yeah. not the kind of writing it is. That's right. And I, I would uh, recommend uh, Carson's book to your listeners as well. It's a very good, really basic uh, guideline for understanding uh, some of what we're talking about. And, and I think it was called uh, Exegetical Fallacies, Julian? That's right. I shall link yeah. to it, actually. I've okay. got a second edition here. It's not a big good. book brilliantly written and as you say it's basic but that that doesn't mean it's not meaty it's still it's extremely well written that's right anybody can get into it can't they and there's a lot of fantastic information in there i mean for such a small book it is absolutely brilliant i I shall link to that highly recommend that excellent excellent yeah those are the kind of books that i try to recommend to people because they're very readable and of course da carson is um, is a new testament research professor at uh, trinity in in uh, deerfield illinois a very highly respected uh, researcher and author, yep. yes. So that's uh, poetry. Um, prophecy is another genre, and there are various types of prophecy. There's, um, there's judgment prophecy, there's uh, salvation prophecy, there's symbolic prophecy. There's even, uh, you mentioned uh, Revelation earlier and read from that, so there's uh, apocalyptic prophecy. And it doesn't all mean prophesying the future, does it? Correct. That's right. Yeah, that's correct. And then the last genre that I mentioned that is not quite as familiar to uh, listeners, Julian, is didactic, the didactic genre. And that primarily involves the epistles uh, of the New Testament and is really designed to be instruction for the reader, and, and, and the key characteristic there is that it is prescriptive rather than descriptive 
Let me give you an example of that. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, 30 uh, says, All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? So compare that with Acts 2, verses 2 through 4, which says, And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves. And they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. And so we see uh, the contrast there in this didactic genre. Now, sure, I was just you, go ahead. Uh, thinking of something I noted here to do with the didactical teaching aspect. You mentioned, you know, the letters of Paul contain, of course, a great deal of teaching information. However, you have to be careful when you're reading that, because yes. if you don't get the context of you were saying right earlier on, you have to be aware of the context, when this was written, why it was written. You can get into trouble with that. And I'm thinking of a, a very controversial, I don't think it should be controversial, but it has been a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul advises people not to marry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and you get into terrible trouble yes. with that if you don't read the context. I'll just yes. uh, read what he says here. So now for the matters you wrote about, there's a clue straight away. Now for the matters <laughs> you wrote about, it's good for a man not to marry. Uh, but then you say, well, just a minute, what, 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 what are they writing about? What's their concern? And then later on, you get to verses 25, 28. He says, uh, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord. So that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I give you my judgment yes. as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Uh, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. And then you have the answer to the problem there. And he says, actually, you know, uh, many of you will have troubles in the world and I would spare you that, he says. So this is a pastoral concern mm-hmm. that he has and he's answering their question. You know, what do we do in these difficult circumstances? And he's just giving his view. He's yes. not even saying that this is commanded by God. He's, he's pastorally giving them some advice. And if you read it as a straightforward didactic command for all of eternity... It's good for a man not to marry. Mm-hmm. We'd, all be, yes. we'd all die out. You know? But that, that's, mis- that's obviously misleading. You know? That's right. You know, your advice early on about reading the context so that you know what foundation these words stand upon is absolutely crucial. Yes. And, and I'm going to open up a can of worms for your listeners, and then I'm going to move good. on and let them figure it out. I'll figure it out on their own. But <laughs> in that same vein, you need to be very, very careful about what is prescriptive versus descriptive because uh, – Apostle Paul was also the one that said uh, women should have their head covered. I uh, do not permit a woman to teach. Uh, I don't want women praying out loud in church, uh, on and on and on and on. And if you don't understand what he was uh, saying and why he was saying that within the context of the letter, you're going to come up with all kinds of crazy things. And people have. They have done that. And so... I'm just going to move on now instead of. Going well, I, think, I think we've already given a, a, a view of how to yes. look out for clues in the text that might actually help understand that. So I don't think we need to go over that. Let's leave that as homework for people to check out for themselves. Fantastic. Excellent. Excellent idea. <laughs> so moving on then, and I hope that our listeners are still with us, but moving on then from uh, genre, uh, we want to understand in this process of observation. Um, the background and the context. So first of all, we want to ask, what's the historical context? What is the political environment? 
what's the religious environment, and then what's the geographical environment. So in other words, we want to get a sense of uh, the big cultural picture, what is going on here. Now, clearly, having said all of that, uh, your listeners no doubt are saying, but that's going to take a lot of work. That's going to take a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And the answer is, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) But see, there's a problem straight away, because does that mean then that before you even read what seems to be the plain meaning of the text, you've got to do all this study in order to have a chance of understanding it? Clearly, that can't be quite right. How how would you answer that? Yeah. Well, I would say as you're reading the text, uh, some things are very clear. An example that comes to mind, the disciples asked Jesus, well, teach us to pray. How do we pray exactly? And so he did that. And that was uh, what we call the disciples' prayer. Now, some people call it the Lord's Prayer. I tend to look at John 17 as the Lord's Prayer, where the Lord was actually praying. And the disciples' prayer, when they came and asked him, how do we pray? And so it's pretty clear as you read that, uh, that he walked them through the steps to prayer And I think uh, that as we read passages like that, Julian, we don't need to understand the historical context or anything else. That's pretty straightforward teaching where Jesus is answering a question and says, this is what needs to happen. Uh, That's interesting before we move away from that one, because I think he says, pray like this. Yeah. Is it right? Pray like this. So he doesn't say pray exactly with these words. That's right. And so just through reading it carefully, that is inviting them to really have a model of prayer. There are various types of things to include in the prayer, yes. which you can then slot in your own concerns. So actually what we do, you know, week after week, we, we say exactly those words. Sometimes I think to myself, well, it's not wrong what we're doing, but really Jesus was inviting us to use this as a model for a wider prayer than just that. I think most yes. people do get that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. but as you say, you don't need to know anything other than read that particular text to get that message. Yes, that's absolutely right. Then from observation, you're going to move on then to interpretation. And as we've already pointed out, observation takes a lot of work, but it bears a lot of fruit. And so we move on then to interpretation, which is the second of the three steps. Now, you and I have already discussed this previously. So you know that I subscribe to what is called the literal historical grammatical method of biblical interpretation. Now, there are other systems of of interpretation Uh, allegorical, uh, naturalistic, uh, for example. Spiritualizing it is another. But the literal historical grammatical method basically looks at the text from a literal point of view first. Now, that doesn't mean that everything is to be interpreted literally. Clearly, there there are (laughs) enormous amounts of Scripture that uh, use metaphor, Uh, symbol uh, that are pictures or types of something else. The parables are an example of uh, being careful about uh, literalism. So there are many instances where we're not advocating that people should read everything literally. Uh, Otherwise, uh, uh, you know, mountains would have wings and fly and they would sing and, you know. (laughs) (laughs) No. No, that's that's not not what we're saying at all. So what, what are you saying, that this is a kind of first port of call when you come to the text, that you're saying, I'm going to have literal eyes to start with unless I've got some good reason to read it in a different way? Yes, yes, that's exactly right. Couldn't have said it better. You're going to read it uh, from a literal perspective that it actually 
means what it says unless you have a reason to believe otherwise. Hmm. Now, one reason would be if you're in a genre – uh, of poetry. Yeah, yeah. That would be a very good reason. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And, and, and um, dare I say that, uh, you know, you're, perhaps you're reading through a gospel, which, of course, is a certain genre. A lot of people talk about ancient biography these days. So you're reading about Jesus, and it's this sort of a storified, I hate that word, but it's a good word in a way, storified version of, you know, what Jesus did and what he said. And then, So you're reading this so far, and then suddenly you come across... A different genre. Yes. For example, in I've brought this up many times, Mark 13, suddenly you hit elements of apocalyptic. Yes. Unless you realize that there is that gear shift, you're going to start thinking, well, how could it possibly be that anybody could stand on a cloud? Right. You know, yes. So you've got to realize that there are those gear shifts even within books and even within passages. That's right. Yes. You had to make allowances for metaphors, uh, hyperbole. Yeah. <laughs> um, John 12, 19 comes to mind. Uh, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the whole world has gone after him, referring to Jesus. Well, we, <laughs> we know that the whole world uh, did not. Um, <laughs> he had quite a few following him, but not, not the whole world. Um, so a lot of people. <laughs> yes, a lot of people would be better there, but clearly a, a case of uh, hyperbole. Yeah, there's um, a the lovely one that I often bring up, which is Matthew chapter 5 verse 29 and he says if your right eye causes you to sin tear it out and throw it away for it is better, yes. it's better for you to lose one of your members and your whole body to be thrown away and I think no 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 that is clearly or that's quite funny in a way actually you know I, I'm quite sure that Jesus not only used hyperbole but also humor mixed with hyperbole yes. at times and the, the message is clear you don't throw parts of your body away but you get out of your life <laughs> things which are causing you to run away from God yes and his uh Listeners would have understood that Julian that way. They would they, they would have saw the extreme uh, illustration that he was using to really talk about the seriousness of sin, and they would have understood it that way. Yes. And so the literal, historical, grammatical method takes into consideration all of those things: yes. historical, what was going on; uh, grammatical, it uses the normal rules and laws of grammar. It allows for figures of speech. And so that is a method that I think is the best. Now, there are folks that use others. And there are even examples, I think, of uh, allegory. Parables are, are a good example of that. Mm. Jesus teaching allegorical truth. You were going to say something, Julian? I was just going to say that I think basically I agree with your approach to Scripture. I think I really do. I would say that over the years, I've probably come to see more and more as being exceptions to the literal. So I think I still do, as it were, you know, open the door into that yeah. room of reading the Bible. But I find that some of the furniture now is not quite what I thought it to be. So I'm seeing those clues in the Bible that tell me, well, no, actually, perhaps this is allegory. Perhaps this is symbol. Perhaps this is apocalyptic. What I wouldn't have seen before. And I do find that process continuing. I have yeah. found it to continue. I'm not trying to say for a moment that I think it's all going to unravel into, into non-literal. No, I don't mean that for a moment. But I just mean that I wasn't sensitive enough to that when I first approached the Bible. And I think I've become more and more sensitive to what is actually there in that sense. Yeah. Well, and something that I try to point out to people as a pastor is that, listen, you need to approach this study of the scriptures with humility and 
You also need to approach those who disagree with you with a good dose uh, of humility. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time I said this from the pulpit, Julian, and the, and the surprised looks on people's faces uh, when, I, when I said this. Uh, I held up the Bible and I said, nobody has this entirely figured out. And the the shocked look on people's faces, just reading their minds. But but it's but you're the pastor. What do you mean you don't have it all figured out? <laughs> how, how, how can that be? And of course, I always uh, quickly ask them: Does anyone here have this completely figured out? Because if you do, then what you're saying really is that you're God. Uh, because only God knows exactly what all of this means, and that doesn't distract from the Bible at all. It's a good dose of humility. I'm so glad to hear you say that. I really am. Just looking at it on face value, it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, how can any of us hope to make complete sense of this collection yes. of writings over thousands of years from different cultures, different way of looking at things? Because nobody's going to get their head around all of that. No. In space and time, uh, I believe it's impossible for man to do that. Mm. But here's the flip side of that. Uh, uh, for those who may be just closing up their notebooks and laying their pens down, say, okay, I'm done with this because they got nothing to tell me if they – no, listen. God has made it abundantly clear through his scriptures. He's made it very simple, very clear that there is a way to salvation. There's a way for people to come into a right relationship with him, and that is through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. There's no no question about that. There's no ambiguity. It's very clear. It's very simple. It's not a complicated message. And so uh, that's the flip side to saying, listen, we're, (laughs) we're not going to say that we're experts and we understand all this because nobody does. However, God has, God has made known to us a son. Thank you so much for pointing that out. Yes, that's absolutely true. So you can come to the Bible and you can get the basic message of it very straightforwardly. Actually. Yes. What we're talking about today yes. is, is, is beyond that, isn't it, really? Yes, so, yes. yes. Nobody should feel that it's impenetrable. It's certainly not impenetrable. It's, uh, no, not at all. Smart, smarter people than me, Julian, struggle with passages in the Scripture. I mean, we mentioned uh, Bill Craig earlier. He is brilliant. But he struggles with things and coming up with an explanation or an interpretation that is completely satisfying. In, in fact, I would think there is something wrong with any scholar who would say, oh, no, I've, I have a clear understanding of all of these passages. I, I had someone ask me once many years ago, they said, so, and it was right after I had, uh, I had earned my Ph.D., and they said, so, what have you learned from all of this? And I said, well, the one thing I've learned is how much I really don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's true. Yeah, it is very true. So that's a, a basic um, overview of a hermeneutical approach mm. to studying the scriptures, um, observation, uh, interpretation, application. Now that's where the rubber meets the road for a lot of people. They just want to cut through the rest of it and say, just tell me uh, what it means. What is the application for all this? Mm. There is nothing more frustrating to me than to hear a sermon that is profoundly exegetical. The, the pastor does a brilliant job of exegeting the text, but then there's no application. Well, what does that mean for me? What spiritual principles can be derived from this? And I try not to leave people hanging there. By all means, uh, elaborate on what it would have meant to the original 
hearers and all of the background information and what was going on at the time and in the cultural context. But then you have to make the spiritual application. And uh, once you go through all that work, Julian, then the spiritual application will become obvious in most cases. We don't need to stretch. We don't need to invent things. We don't need to pull application out of the thin air, although some people do that. But that's not necessary if you go through the proper process of observation and interpretation, word studies and, and syntax and grammar and all of that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but, while, but while you're doing all that stuff, you've got to have that sense of wanting to apply what's said there to the people who are listening, haven't you? Yes. I mean, one of the things that, uh, going back to Don Carsten, actually, as we brought him up, he says that this is one of the cardinal sins, as it were, of young preachers. They get all trained up with all the exegetical skills, and <laughs> that's, then that's, that's what they want to show off. And it's not that they don't care, it's just that, and I'm sure he's not characterizing all young preachers, but, you know, it's just one of those tendencies. It's that this is what they've learned, and so this is what they want to use. Yes. And yet, as you're using those tools, there's got to be that sense of, I'm actually conscious that God wants to minister to people who are listening to this. This is the whole purpose of doing this. So you've got to be conscious as you're doing it, haven't you? So as you say, I agree with you. It comes naturally, as it were, or supernaturally out of your wrestling with the text. Yes. But you've got to sense that's what you actually want to do. You're called to communicate to people. Yes, yes. And and really, uh, my experience is that the application uh, will come through the process of observation and interpretation. It'll become clear to you uh, as you're working through those steps what the application is. And, and that's how the Holy Spirit works. Uh, the Holy Spirit will impress those things upon people as to the application. So uh, don't fret that you won't come to understand what the application is because you will. And that's a very valuable process, not just for pastors, but anyone who would want to understand uh, what the scripture is saying, teachers, uh, lay leaders, uh, whoever takes up uh, the study. Uh, it's a very important process. Don't, and I encourage people not to skip that uh, because it, uh, what's, what's the old saying that, um, well, it escapes me now, but something about the journey, the life lessons learned are learned in the journey. Or, so it's the process that really yields the fruit um, of uh, Bible study. Well, of course, we're coming up to Christmas, and this is supposed to be, is it not, a time of celebration. And lots of people will be celebrating, but what will they be celebrating in many cases? And, uh, you know, very often these days people will say, well, it's all just descended into consumerism and apathy and overindulgence, eating too many pork pies and <laughs> too much Christmas pudding and all this sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, along with that can go a misunderstanding of what it's all about. Even within church circles sometimes, I mean, I've heard people say things like, you know, well, this is Jesus' birthday. And, well, it isn't Jesus' birthday, of course, nobody knows when he was born. But in a way, it isn't even just a celebration of Jesus' birthday. Really, it's the incarnation, isn't it? It's that God actually becomes a human being and experiences the life among the people he's created in this world. So I guess the question here is, does any of this chime with you? Do you think that, just for example, the popular nativity images that we get on Christmas cards and nativity scenes with a stable and the manger and the baby, and even, even though there's no mention of a stable and, and, uh, or an inn or an innkeeper and all that sort of thing actually in the scriptures, um, did you think all that sort of cozy familiarity gets in the way of the essential message of what Christmas is really all about? Yeah, I, I think it has, Julian. At least here in the States, 
my concern, and, and uh, I'm certainly not alone in this perspective, is that uh, commercialism, uh, materialism has really gotten in the way and clouded the incarnation of Christ. God became man, the story of Emmanuel, God with us. And, and that's no more clearer than, uh, than when we look at the nativity scenes that go up uh, all around, uh, even in, in church foyers. Uh, the nativity scene itself, it's, it's a tradition. And all of the, the cast of characters is a tradition. Because the fact of the matter is, the, the Magi who came to worship uh, the Christ, this one who was born king of the Jews, as the scripture says, uh, they were not there at the manger scene. If we put all the scripture together and take a look at it, they probably arrived to visit Jesus uh, when he was a toddler. Now, scholars will, will give a range of uh, 15 months to two years old, something like that. But uh, clearly, as you look at the scriptures, Julian, which is where we should be going to develop our uh, narratives, Jesus had left Bethlehem. Joseph and Mary had taken him back to their hometown of uh, Nazareth. And for some unexplained reason, they had uh, returned back to Bethlehem uh, when he was a toddler. Now, uh, we know that because it says that the Magi followed the star and they uh, from the east and they came. And, and the Magi, by the way... They're not kings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they, they, were, they were actually king makers. <laughs> they were a very powerful, very influential cast of priests, uh, astronomers, uh, if you will. Yes, back in the day, really, when the difference between astronomy and astrology was not there. Yes. Really. It was stargazing that's right. and uh, philosophizing upon them. Yes, that's right. Uh, they most certainly did not ride camels. They didn't have turbans on. Um, there weren't three of them, and, necessarily. Uh, and there weren't three of them. That's, that's right. There, there may have been as many as a hundred, some scholars suggest, and they would have been a very intimidating presence. And, uh, wow. and we know that from the biblical account that when they showed up in Jerusalem, it says the whole city, it says Jerusalem was in distress at the appearance of, of the Magi. This makes total sense, but it does mean we're going to have to rewrite that. Uh, 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 yes, yeah. 100. <laughs> 100 Magi of Orient are. I don't think it would have the same kind of ring to it. That's, that's exactly right. And uh, I mean, everything you're saying there really does make sense. You didn't know that I was going to say this, but I lifted a quote out of a book by Christopher McIntosh called The Astrologers and Their Creed. It's written hmm. by a non-Christian. It's a fascinating tiny book actually but uh, he has this paragraph where he touches on the magi and you know there's so much about the story of the magi that i think really does fit the reality of that situation i've, I've never really had a trouble with the idea of the magi at all i mean let me just quote from him he says yes quote one of the most remarkable instances of astrology in the bible is the story of the magi in the new testament it was no coincidence that the three that's what he says the three wise men from the east were led to jesus by a star the star and what it portended were part of a very ancient Chaldean legend, as we have seen from the prophecy in the Book of Numbers. In Chaldean astrology, the constellation of Cassiopeia is the one which presides over Syria and Palestine. 
this constellation was known as the woman with child because every 300 years or so it brought forth an unusually bright star to an astrologer the appearance of the star would mean that the queen of palestine had brought forth an heir to the throne if this were the case it would be of the utmost mm -hmm. importance to go and pay homage to the future king it has been calculated that it was this star which appeared just after the birth of Christ and must therefore have been the one which the Magi observed and followed, end quote. Just a magic yes. little paragraph. Yes. I mean, I, you know, this is a, it has been calculated. He doesn't give the source of that. But nevertheless, just the general historical observation that he makes there, that this fits the ancient Near East context. And then they all as you say, yes. perhaps even arrive as a, as yes. en masse and uh, <laughs> disturb everybody in the city. That's where they'd go. That's where they'd go to Herod's palace. And mm. they'd find yes. out, well, look, yes. know, who, who is this new king? Yeah, that's exactly right. So that, uh, that is the biblical picture of the nativity, if we can call it that. Um, a couple of years ago, Julie and I preached on, uh, on Christmas Sunday from a text in Revelation, and I, and I want to offer this for your consideration, for your listeners' consideration. And my approach to this was there is a glaring difference between Earth's view of the nativity and the Christmas story, if we can call it that, and heaven's perspective. And, and there is a heavenly perspective on, on the Christmas story, and that's found in Revelation 12. Now, there is much symbolism here. It has been allegorized, and I'll, I'll admit that right up front. But I think it's very clear who the cast of characters are. And it says this, uh, Revelation 12, starting at verse 1, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars, and she was with child. And she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven, and threw them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, I am not even going to try to <laughs> explain all of the symbolism and all of the types and everything that's going on, but I am suggesting that perhaps that is a picture of the Christmas story from heaven's eyes. And what's interesting to me about that passage is, obviously there's no manger, there's no shepherds or wise men. The nativity from heaven's perspective, had three central figures. Israel, who is the woman, Jesus Christ, who is the son that was born to her, and of course, our great enemy, the Satan. So when you understand that, you can begin to grasp the true significance of Christmas, that Jesus Christ was really God's thrust into space and time that he was going to judge Satan and, and uh, really destroy him. So uh, there's something for your reader, listeners, to think about. It's interesting that you say that uh, one aspect of that is Israel. Now, of course, that is a particular use of the term. So this is God's people, isn't it, that's meant there? Yes. So we're not yes. talking about yes. 
a nation in this geographical sense. We're talking about, Correct. Well, really, we're talking about spiritual Israel, the true people of God. Yes. So that's one of the characters in this grand vision that's presented in Revelation. Yes. And I do think it's actually really helpful to have those two images together, the baby there in the manger, yes. and at the same time, that glorious, dramatic heavenly vision given to us by that mm. genre of revelation there, yes. which we have to understand is a drama, but it is telling us yes. this grand story of a story in a true sense, you know, not the, right. <laughs> it doesn't mean it's made up just because it's a story. It's a, it's a narrative, isn't it? This grand narrative of, of what God is doing. So yes. keeping those two together, I think, well, that's great advice yes. for this Christmas. Yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Well, Julian, I, I appreciate the uh, opportunity to uh, be on your show and, uh, and to chat with you. It's been a wonderful, wonderful time. It's been absolutely fantastic. I've really, really enjoyed having you on, and uh, thank you ever so much for offering to come on. And uh, and I've said a number of times during this interview, oh, I wish I could ask you this, I wish I could ask you that. And in fact, we've just had a, a long conversation about some very abstruse uh, subject that I'm going to cut out. So you, you'll have to email me, folks, if you want to know what that conversation was about. But uh, it was a very controversial area that I didn't think uh, we could really tease apart satisfactorily um, and put on air. But uh, Yes. Quite frankly, Mike, I want to ask you tons and tons and tons more things, but we can't we can't do that because we've got lives to live. <laughs> so it's been wonderful speaking to you, uh, Mike. Thanks ever so much for coming on. I do look forward to speaking to you again at some point. It'd be great. Oh, that would be wonderful, Julian. I appreciate that. God bless you, my friend. And you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, well, that's it for this year. This being very probably the final podcast from The Mind Renewed for 2015. As I said, the mysterious Nephilim boys of Lightfoot Radio should be joining us on New Year's Day itself to ring in 2016. And just to whet your appetites for that, the Fireside Nephilim Boys, a multinational think tank affiliated to Lightfoot Radio, um, they'll be joining us for a roundtable discussion on pretty much anything that managed to get under our collective skins during 2015. Is it really true that the Earth is flat? Is the Moon really a hologram? Is Elvis really a senior member of the Illuminati and alive and well inside the Vatican? These? Well, perhaps not all these, and many others we shall consider and each argue our case in what promises to be something of a hopefully friendly radio brawl. That's what I wrote on the schedule page, and I'm sure it'll be a very enjoyable time when I'll be speaking to G.K. Garth Kennedy from Australia, Cliff Garner from the US, Cruzy from South Africa, and Frank Johnson also from the US. And that'll be on New Year's Day itself. But for the moment, that's it. I shall, of course, be floating around at the TMR website, adding bits and pieces and editing a few things uh, so if you'd like to get in touch please do i shall still be around um so all that remains is for me to say i wish you all a very happy christmas wherever you happen to be on this globe um that is assuming it is a globe uh, if, you're, if you're not sure about that you'll have to wait till new year's day to find out um and also i wish you a very happy new year you have been listening to me julian charles of the mindrenewed.com and i very much look forward to speaking to you again in the near future